Today we continue in the book of Hosea in chapter 11. So turn with me to Hosea chapter 11. And we'll look at verses 1 through 7 today. Hosea 11, 1 through 7. As you get there, unrequited love is tragic. And that big word unrequited means most simply unreturned. Uh, so this is uh, when one person loves another, but the object of their love does not return that same love. Uh, maybe they have another. Uh, maybe they just uh, see in that person uh, a friend or uh, a sibling kind of relationship. And, and right, these are common stories. We hear stories of unrequited love throughout our culture, right? Uh, they're everywhere. They're in songs. Uh, they're in movies and television stories. Uh, poetry is written of unrequited love. Uh, there are many tales. And more than that, maybe there are personal stories. Maybe, maybe you in your own life have, have experienced that or maybe you've seen that in someone close to you uh, when they love someone dearly and that love was not returned. It was unrequited. And it's kind of a depressing situation if you're the one in it, right? to love someone who does not love you in return. Unrequited love is tragic. But consider for a moment what it means to not return God's love. That is to say, God loves us, but it is unrequited love. We do not return it to God. God is love. That's what the Apostle John declares in in 1 John 4. He says that twice. He writes that twice. God is love. And what will God do with love unreturned to him? Today, as we continue in Hosea, I want us to see that God loves first. God loves first, and that love demands a right response. God loves first, and that love demands a right response. So let us look into our passage today. Hosea chapter 11, starting in verse 1. And this is God's word. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. And this is the word of the Lord. So who are the Israelites? Uh, Remember that they are the 12 tribes that came out of the land of Egypt uh, during the time of the Exodus. So go to the book of Exodus and you find these are the Israelites, right? And so who are the 12 tribes? Well, 10 of them were named after the sons of Jacob, and two of them were named after the sons of Joseph. 
Joseph being one of Jacob's son, but Jacob thinking that Joseph was lost to him forever, adopted his two sons and blessed them as his own. And so we have 12 tribes. The tribes come into the promised land, right? So the exodus happens. Uh, God delivers them from, from that slavish occupation in Egypt, and he delivers them into the promised land, and they establish themselves in it by the strength and the power of God. Eventually, they demand a king. They say, we want a king, just like all the other nations. They have kings, and look at how great they are. So let's have a king. And God gives them a king, and the first king is King Saul, right? And Saul, he was just like all the other nations. He was a king, uh, blueprinted after all the other nations. He was taller than everyone. He was handsome. Um, Sounds a whole lot like what we expect of politicians today, maybe? I don't know. Uh, He was tall. He was handsome. And he had a way about him. And he was a good military king. He he led the people in military might. Uh, But his heart was not after God's, and he disobeyed God on numerous occasions. And so God takes the kingship from him and gives it to another, to King David. Uh, He anoints David as king, and David is called a man after God's own heart. And so David is the one who really establishes the borders of the nation. He he pursues the enemies of Israel uh, to the ends of the borders of the land. And the, the country is established. And then David's son Solomon takes the throne. And when Solomon takes the throne of the, the nation of Israel, they really experience a golden age. If we know what that kind of means. that This is an age of cultural height. This is an age where there is rest in the land, where there is wealth in the land, where there is great culture, where people come from around the world to Israel to see what's going on. But at the end of Solomon's reign, his heart strays, and he begins to worship the false gods of his wives. And so God promises the kingdom will be divided. I'm not going to remove the line of David entirely because God had made a promise to David that there would be someone on the throne forever of his line. (coughs) But that man, that king, would not rule over the entirety of the nation. And so after Solomon dies, his son Rehoboam takes the throne. He's a knucklehead. Uh, He believes in the uh, counsel of his young friends to the contradiction of the old and wizened uh, counselors. And so the kingdom splits and breaks away uh, the ten northern tribes. And then Judah is left on its own. And you say that's 11 tribes, but there's 12. So where's the 12th? Remember, the 12th is, is the Levites. Right? They don't have a geographical area of land like the rest of the tribes do. They live among the peoples and uh, based predominantly in Jerusalem. Right. So... So this is the split. As we come to it, as we come to the book of Hosea, Hosea is preaching unto the northern kingdom, the ten tribes of the northern kingdom, which take on the name Israel, and Judah as a nation takes on the name Judah, right? Because that's all they are. They are Judah. And so we find ourselves in the midst of this, uh, that 
the northern kingdom of Israel has been unfaithful to God. And that starts at the very beginning of the nation, right? The first king, Jeroboam the first, or Jeroboam the son of Nebat, uh, he establishes places of false worship. He establishes idol worship. And all this to stop the people, it's really a political maneuver. He wants to stop the people from going back to Judah and maybe going down there and saying, well, it's actually nice down here. We should go back, we should join back with Judah or let's move down into Judah and, and just stay there. So he doesn't want the people to flee. So he creates impediments to their going to Jerusalem, the place of legitimate worship. Right? That was the only place God had chosen Jerusalem and the temple in Jerusalem there to dwell and to be among his people. So this is the situation we come to in the book of Hosea. And just to kind of give an idea of scope. It's probably about 150 to 200 years from Jeroboam the first to the last king of Israel, Hosea. So about 150, 200 years. And along that time period, the situation, the, the, the circumstances in the northern kingdom devolves. It doesn't get better. It gets worse as each passing year comes. The amount of sin grows. The amount of false worship grows. The amount of evils grow. And so we come here. It's a, it's a problem that God can no longer ignore, but must indeed do something about. So let's turn to our passage. Uh, let me just pause there and say, God doesn't ignore it, right? He has mercy upon them. He is patient with them. So it's not as though he is ignoring it. He's merciful towards them. And he can no longer be merciful towards them. But let's turn to our passage. Let's track this theme of love, because that's what we see uh, in Isaiah 11. Indeed, uh, the title in, in my Bible, the ESV, says the Lord's love for Israel. Right. So, so this is the theme that that carries us through this passage. And let's see first, love first. And we see that in verse one, love first. The scripture reads, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. God speaks to the people and he says that when Israel was a youth, Right, so that's the ESV uses the word child, but we could see it youth or young man. Uh, the word there could mean anything of that. So uh, prior to adulthood, anything prior to adulthood. He says when they were back in their infancy as a nation, when they were sore pressed, when they were in as slaves to Pharaoh, God loved them. And we ask the question, well, why did God love them? Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 8, Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8, tells us, Moses, uh, right, Deuteronomy being the second telling of the law, he recapitulates uh, what has happened, and he speaks unto the people this, Deuteronomy 7, 6 to 8, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. 
So why did God love the people of Israel? Well, because he loved them, right? That's that's what Moses says. God loved you. It wasn't because you were more numerous than all the other peoples. It wasn't because you were this mighty nation and God was like, I need you on my team. Right? He, they couldn't play the best game of dodgeball. They weren't the athletic one. Right? They're the one that would be least likely to be picked. Uh, you know, if this was the, the high school yearbook, they're the ones least likely to succeed. Not the one most likely, but least likely, right? God chose the people of Israel because he loved them. And because of the covenant that he had made with their forefathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, God kept his oath and God kept his love. He loved them first. He chose them first. And understand, believer, that this is God's disposition towards you too. He loved you first. 1 John 4.10 1 John 4.10 In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Or how about, as Paul says it in Romans 5.8, But God chose his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Right? So it's not that we were holy and God said, you know what, I want, I want to make provision for you because you're holy and you're good and, and you're a good little uh, you're a good little boy or girl. Now he says, while you were still sinners, while you were really repugnant to him in his holiness, Christ died for us. Or how about as Paul writes to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians 1, 3 through 5. Ephesians 1, 3 through 5. Believer, this is you. This is God's love for you. Listen to this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. God did not love you because he looked forward in time and he saw that you would love him. And he said, well, they're going to they're going to love me later on. So I'm going to love them now. You didn't love God. But he loved you. If indeed you are in Christ, he did not love you because you were a good person. Right. That's what Romans tells us. While you were still a sinner, while you weren't a good person, Christ died for you. He loved and chose you before the foundation of the world, brothers and sisters in Christ. Before you had done anything, either good or evil. But in order for God's purpose of election to stand, he loved you. And this is the wonderful grace of our God. And he loved his people Israel, right? That's what Hosea is saying. When Israel was a child, I loved him. Right? This is God speaking to them. When Israel was a child, I loved them. When they were but a youth, when they were few and nothing, and nothing special. He loved them when they were not even a nation. He loved them first. And he called them out of Egypt, right? He says, and out of Egypt, I called my son. That God calls the people his son is something rare in the scriptures when it applies to the whole nation of Israel. 
it's something rare, but it links us back to the Exodus, right? Because this, this is where we're at in this passage. We're in the Exodus of the people from the land. Exodus 4, 22 through 23. Exodus 4, 22 through 23. God speaks to Moses and says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Right? So this is getting us to think of the Exodus. Out of Egypt, God called his people, his son. Right? And God tells Pharaoh there that, that chilling news that if he does not obey God, there will be devastating consequences. And we know that's that's what happens, right? There are, there are devastating consequences. Anybody who does not have the blood of a lamb on their doorpost is not passed over, right? But their firstborn, their firstborn uh, child, son, dies, uh, even of the cattle, even of the the livestock. And we have this link. So we, we link this back, but we also have this link forward to the time of Jesus. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Matthew's gospel tells us that after the wise men had left, right? The wise men leave by another route. They don't go back to King Herod. Uh, Herod gets upset at them for that. And he wants to be done with this supposed upstart king that was born in Bethlehem. So he commands that all the children two years and younger be killed in Bethlehem because he wants to snuff out the king of kings. But Joseph is called in a dream to take his family to Egypt to escape persecution. And then we pick up in Matthew 2, 14 through 15. Matthew 2, 14 through 15. And he, that is Joseph, rose and took the child, Jesus, and his mother, Mary, by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod, And listen to this. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, as we come back to Hosea, this doesn't seem like a prophecy, right? A foretelling. This doesn't seem, uh, this is, this is what's pulling us back to the Exodus. But what Matthew is telling us, what the Holy Spirit is telling us, is that this is a story, this is a pattern that we understand Jesus fulfills. And we could contrast here Jesus and the nation of Israel, both called sons of God, both called out of Egypt. But if we think of the people of Israel called out of Egypt, uh, they were often straying, right? They didn't obey God. They weren't faithful. They're at the bottom of the mountain as Moses is up getting the Ten Commandments, right? The the commandments of God, the law. They had seen the power and the glory of God descend on the mountain. They're down at the bottom and they're like, Moses is dead. Come on, let's let's get some gold together and we'll create an idol to go before us. We need something to go before us. Let's create an idol to do so. They're, They're at the bottom of the mountain. And they're already being unfaithful. They're already breaking the covenant. 
But as we think of Jesus, as we think of, uh, as we track the story of Jesus, right, the story of Jesus and the story of Israel diverge at important points. Jesus recapitulates the, the story of Israel, but he does so in a better way. Because whereas Israel is unfaithful, Jesus remains faithful to the end. He remains faithful now. He returns God's love. But Israel, well, let's look at that next. In verses 2 through 3, love unrequited. Love unrequited in verses 2 through 3. God says the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Right, This idea of calling is this idea of gathering. The more he gathered his people, the more he brought them together, the more they strayed, the more they went away from him. The people spurned the love of God. They disregarded his command to come. And, and consider this again. Consider who are they straying from? Who are they going from? Who do they, who do they went away from? God, the creator of the universe, the one who had delivered them out of the land of Egypt, the one who had shown his power unto them in glory and might and splendor, the one who loved them. That's the one they rejected. That's the one they rebelled against. They heard the call of love and instead they went the way of unfaithfulness. Right? And so we come to the book of Hosea, right? If we, if we bear that in mind, as we come to the book of Hosea, we get these vivid illustrations about what the people are indeed doing. And that's why we see such strong language. If we bear this in mind, that God loved them. And we'll see more about what that love looks like here in this, in this passage. But God loved them and they had committed spiritual adultery by worshiping other gods. They were prostitutes. Hosea 4, 12 through 13. Hosea 4, 12 through 13. My people inquire of a piece of wood and their walking staff gives them oracles. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. They sacrifice on the tops of the mountains and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth, because their shade is good. Therefore, your daughters play the whore, and your brides commit adultery. Right? That's why. That's why there's this shocking language to us, because what the people are doing is shocking. This they did despite the Lord's love of them. Look at verse 3. How did God love them? Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. Right? This taking up by the arms, we, we can get this picture of they're, they're a child that's trying to walk. And dad comes along and steadies them. He grabs their hand to give them a, a, a steadying so that way they can continue on. Right, we can get that picture. This is, this is the, the sweetness of God, the gentleness of God, the, the tenderness of God. And, and we see this again and again in this passage. God cared for them. He set them up. He gave them the best. And then we have this this chilling end part of this verse, right? But they did not know that I healed them. 
Psalm 103, verses 1 to 5. Psalm 103, 1 to 5. Listen, this should have been the heart of the people of Israel. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. This is the Lord's work. This is what God does. But the people of Israel did not know that it was He that healed them. Instead of blessing the Lord, they abandoned the Lord. They had every opportunity to know the love of God, but they didn't pay attention or understand it. And understand, friend, that if you are listening to me right now, you have every opportunity to know the love of the Lord. You have this blessed moment to learn about the love of God towards sinners. 1 John 4, 9 and 10. 1 John 4, 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And this is the reality, right? We're all born into sin. Sin being that evil, all those wrongs that we do, the evil we think, the evil that we say, the evil that we do, and the good that we fail to do. All these things, this sin condemns us before God. They condemn us before a holy God, and God must carry out justice against sin. But God sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins, the atoning sacrifice of our sins. And this word propitiation, it's this idea that God's wrath is poured out not on us, but on our propitiation. See, it's not that when God forgives us that, that, that God just says, oh, your sin doesn't matter. No, sin matters. It's not that God just says, oh, I'm not going to look at that anymore. I'm going to forget about it. No, we have forgiveness of sins because Christ Jesus on the cross bore God's wrath for our sins. They weren't just ignored. They were paid for in full by Christ Jesus. This is the love of God. And you, friend, can can know this. You can have your sins paid for. If you trust in the person of Jesus Christ, if you believe that he is who he said he is, and he has done what he has said he has done, if you believe in his death on the cross and resurrection from the grave, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. By the way, that's not me saying that. That's a scripture saying that. That's God saying that unto you. You will know the love of God for you. Trust in Christ Jesus today. Turn from your sins and turn unto God. Do not forsake the love of God because God's love demands a right response. To ignore it, to rebel against it, to repudiate it comes with grave consequences. We'll see that later in our passage. 
for the people of Israel. But the people did not return the love of God. They had love unrequited. Let's see next how the love of God was tender in verse 4. We have love tender, verse 4. God says to the people, I led them with cords of kindness. The, the literal Hebrew word here, and this is the, the difficulty always that we run into in Hosea, is difficulty in the Hebrew. Uh, this, this word is literally the cords of man. And how are we to understand this? We see the ESV renders it cords of kindness. Uh, the King James Version gives us the literal the more literal here, that I, I drew them with cords of a man. And the, the understanding here, this idea is that perhaps that God did not use divine power to lead his people. Instead, he condescended to them and used a kind of more uh, human means like a man would lead his ox, right? Because that's what we have happen here. We have a shift in metaphor. We have these a lot in Hosea. We have a shift in metaphor. We were talking about Israel being the child or the son. Now we're Israel is an ox. And so the idea here is probably something like, I led them as a man leads his ox. And this idea that God didn't lead them with divine power is to provoke in us this understanding that God was gentle towards them. He could have harangued them and pressed them and shown them all his divine power, which we know frightened them. Go back to the book of Deuteronomy or the book of Exodus. When God descends on the mountain, the people are terrified. And God could have led them that way the entire time. But God was gentle towards them. He led them with kind cords, bands of love, right, that we see here. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. There's this gentleness to God's leading of his people. We go on, we see, and I became as to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, rather than ladening them down and burdening them with greater and greater force. He eased it. Not only, he says, but I bent down to them and fed them. He eased their yoke. He, he fed them. We go back to Hosea 10.11. Hosea 10.11. Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thresh, and I spared her fair neck. But I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Judah must plow. Jacob must harrow for himself. Right there in that verse, God says, right, the people really had an easy life comparatively. And then he also says there's judgment coming, right? Because they, they did not return his love, because they did not respond with a right response to his love. He's going to make them work. He's going to put the, a heavy load upon them. But he also, he condescended, he fed them as he led them. And the backdrop to this is, of course, right, the, the story of the Exodus. And how did God feed the people in the story of Exodus, in the book of Exodus? Exodus 16, 
Verses 11 through 15, Exodus 16, 11 through 15. And the Lord said to Moses, I've heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. And when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? Which is where we get the word manna. What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. Uh, skip ahead to verse 35 of Exodus 16. Verse 35. The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Did God feed the people? Yeah. He condescended to them. He gave them what they needed. And for 40 years, he provided this miraculous bread for the people. He loved them. He didn't want them to starve in the wilderness, although that's what they accused Moses was trying to do to them, right? Moses, you've led us out here just to kill us. God had mercy upon them. God loved them first. God loved them tenderly. And the love of God went unrequited, unreturned. And so now we get to the sorrowful part of this oracle, right? So far, we've, we've had this history about the people of Israel and how, about God's love for his people. Well, now let's get to the sorrowful part. We come to love canceled in verses 5 through 6. Love canceled. Verse 5 reads, They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king because they have refused to return to me. Essentially, what God is saying here is that the exodus is going to be undone. The exodus is going to be undone. That's the simplest way to explain what God will do to his people. And they're not going to return to the land of Egypt this time. They're going to go to Assyria. Assyria is going to be their king. They won't have their own nation. The Assyrian nation is going to be their nation. They're going to lose their distinctiveness. No more resuscitation of the love of God for the people. No more history lesson. Now comes the time for the proclamation of punishment. The people have refused to return to God, and so they will return to to captivity. God eased their yoke, and now they're going to have a heavy yoke. God loved them, and they rebelled against his love. Now they will know what it is like to live without the love of God. Verse 6 tells us, The sword shall rage against their cities. War is coming. Destruction is coming. Again, we have some difficult Hebrew in this phrase, consume the bar of their gates. That phrase, commentators suggest, could be something more like, uh, I will put an end to their boasts. Or other scholars, other commentators suggest it could be a reference <laughs> to the end of false prophets. It's, it's kind of a question as to what the, the metaphor, the simile is here in reference to. But indeed, all these things are true. God's going to destroy their cities. The bars of their gates are going to be destroyed. The, their boasting, their prideful boasting, saying, look at us. That's going to be done away with. Their false prophets are going to be removed. And so whatever the meaning that we should derive from that particular phrase, the understanding is clear. 
God's love for them has been canceled. The love of God will be replaced by the wrath of God. His holy character demands recompense for the people's rebellious ways. God will repay them for what they are doing. And yet, for the people of God, for those who are in Christ Jesus, we do have this promise. So I don't want us to get into this idea here that that this means for us that we have to fear that God will cancel His love for us. It will never be. Romans 8.34 tells us, Who is to to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed is interceding for us. Or Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Understand this, what God has done in the new covenant, what separates the church from the people of Israel of old, is that the love of God will never be removed from his people. It will never be canceled. You may be disciplined, you may be sore afflicted by God to call you back to himself, but you will never stand condemned before him. But for those who think they are his people, who give empty profession to the name of Christ Jesus, who, who, you know, mark on the demographic sheet, yeah, I'm a Christian, and then it makes no difference in their life. To those, God does declare the cancellation of his mercies. He will punish those who in pretense come to him. Right? This is surely what is meant by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Indeed, such will be God's disposition to towards those that think God is satisfied with the form of a religion without its power. God promises that they will be unheard. And so let's see that lastly, love unheard. In verse 7, verse 7, my people are bent, my people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. The people are fixed on not returning God's love. They are bent on turning away. Their love is backsliding. That's their first love. They'd rather backslide than love God. This phrase, uh, and though they call out to the Most High, this this phrase Most High is in Hebrew, El Al. Uh, The NET translation, the NET translation, translate that as Baal, as a reference to Baal. And it seems here what God is saying is that they call out to the Most High and it's probably calling out to them, praying to them, praying to God in a duplicitous way, meaning that they are at one time saying, yes, Lord, our God, while also saying, hey, Baal, listen to me. So they mean both. They've syncretized, they've melded together 
worship of false god and true god. And so though they call out to the Most High, though they call out to El All, he shall not raise them up at all. He won't listen. Baal's not going to help them. For such double-mindedness, they will be unheard. James tells us in James 1 that the duplicitous man, the two-souled man, the double-minded man, is unstable in all his ways. And what he asks for, he won't receive. Because he asks not with faith, but with doubting. Such a man is unstable. The people of Israel are unstable. They're duplicitous. It's not that they don't acknowledge the Lord God, but they believe in these other gods that they're the ones who really are the ones leading them. Or rather, they're kind of hedging their bets. Well, if we get these false gods and we get the true God, well, one of them will surely listen to us and and help us. But they will know that they are unheard when Baal does not answer them, when God does not answer them. Baal won't answer because he's a false god and he can't hear at all. You could go back to the the time when Elijah confronts the, the prophets of Baal. And as they're shouting about, Elijah uh, sarcastically jokes towards them, right? Maybe he's asleep. Maybe he's relieving himself. Just give him a little time. He's almost done. No, he won't answer because he is not God. It's not a lie. You can do nothing. God won't answer. God won't answer them because... Not because he isn't real, but because he's carrying out what he has promised to carry out in this word. They will be unheard because God is punishing them. He has already spoken about their destruction. And so if they wanted to know who is God, who's told them what is going to happen? Only God has. Then they will know who God is. God loved his people. He loved them first. He loved them tenderly. He dealt gently with them. (coughs) He cared for them. He healed them. But for all this love, all this steadfast love of the Lord, for all this, they turned from him. They were determined to keep turning from him. They were bent, the scripture says. My people are bent on turning away from me. It's their bent they want to do and now do you have a fuller picture of the evil of the ways of the people of israel god pursued them in love and yet they did not return his love and at every stage they rejected and rebelled against his love he loved them he wanted to bless them and they thought that they were better off with someone else as if there was anyone else who could love them like the lord god could god loves first And that love demands a right response. The people of Israel should have obeyed the commands of God. They should have sought after God alone. They should have worshipped him in the manner God prescribed. God had spoken and made clear to them his designs and desires, his will and his ways. Deuteronomy 30, verses 11 through 15. At the end of Moses' life, as he's given them again 
the, the commandments, the history. Listen to what he says unto the people. Listen to what God says to his people here, right? Deuteronomy 30, verses 11 through 15. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you. Neither is it far off. It's not in heaven that we should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Neither it is beyond the sea that you should say, well, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. Right. So what does Moses tell the people? I've given you the command. God has given you his commands and they're not esoteric. They're not out there somewhere. They're not hard to understand. They're not out in the ether somewhere where we have to go and search for them and find them. They're not across the sea. We don't have to get on a ship and hope we can find them in a foreign land. The word of God, the commands of God, the love of God is before them. And it's understandable to them. And yet they spurned it. God loved them and they did not love God in return. And I would ask of you, friend, what, what have you done with the love of God? Right There's that common verse, John 3.16. Do we know John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever should believe in him might not perish but have eternal life. And it's not just a catchy verse. It's not just something we sling on merchandise. It's not just something that we, right, we, we write on our faces when we're on the football field. Right? It's not just some catchy lingo. It demands your response. This verse demands your response. The scripture demands a response. Christ Jesus demands a response. The love of God demands a right response. And listen, sin is a response. Rebellion turning from what God has commanded is a response to the love of God. Resolving that you will deal with God later in your life is a response. Saying that you will look into that religion thing later is a response. And friend, I can tell you that those responses will gain you only one thing. Judgment. Death. Condemnation. Eternity in hell. Listen carefully to the scriptures. This is from Hebrews 3, verses 7 through 14. Hebrews 3, 7 through 14. Listen, listen to God here. Don't listen to me, listen to God. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. 
but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Don't ignore what God has said. Don't resolve within yourself, I don't care what God has said. Today, if you're listening, do not turn from God in rebellion. Do not spurn his love. Unrequited love is tragic, right? We have stories of that in culture. And as we look at those, we're, we're sorrowful over them, right? We, we sometimes watch them and go, oh, bless, bless her heart, bless his heart. But the unrequited love of God is more than tragic. It is devastating. Unrequited love in this instance is deadly. So, friend, turn to Christ Jesus today. Believe in him. Confess your sins to God. Ask him for the forgiveness of your sins. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Talk with me. Talk with Jack about what that means if you have questions. Don't let this moment pass. And brothers and sisters in Christ, the love of God demands a right response. You are the recipient of God's eternal steadfast love. I want us to go back to 1 John again. I want, to li- I want you to listen carefully. Don't tune this out. 1 John 4, 10 through 11. 1 John 4, 10 and 11. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And this is the love of God, right? Not that we loved God, but that he loved us first. And if God loved us in this manner, we also ought to love one another. Loving your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, according to the scriptures, is a right response to the love of God. So brothers and sisters in Christ, you want to know how to put this passage into action. How to, how to not be like the people of Israel. Love one another. John goes on to write in 1 John 4.20, 1 John 4.20, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he, does not, he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. The love of God demands a right response. Paul writes to us in Romans 6, verses 12 through 14. So what's another way? What's another means by which we rightly respond to the love of God? If you are in Christ, listen. This is for you. Romans 6, 12 through 14. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. Right? If you have been changed by the love of God, beloved, then your relationship to sin has changed forever. And so do not spurn the love of God by seeking out rebellious sin, but rather kill your sin. Turn from it. And when you find yourself straying back towards it, when you find yourself like the Israelites of old saying, oh man, don't you remember Egypt? It was so great in Egypt. We have pots of meat. And here all we have is this manna. Who wants manna? 
I want a pot of meat. Don't be like that, right? That's what the people of Israel did. When you find yourself in that position, when you find yourself longing for the past, go back to God and repent. Say, God, please give me spiritual strength, spiritual power to put these sins to death. He who called you is faithful. He will surely do it. If you have grasped something of the love of God, then love God and love others, right? Those are the two great commandments. Not to earn God's love, right? We don't do this. Our right response is not to earn it because God loves us first. We can't earn God's love. He loved us first. So we don't do these things to earn our our love from God. But because we have been loved with a tender love. Because you are his beloved and he is yours. Love. And perhaps I should add to eagerly look forward to the coming of Christ Jesus. That's a right response. Long to be with your savior. To see the lamb who is slain yet lives. Long for the love of God to be made present, plain, and perfect forevermore. Let's pray. Oh, great Father in heaven, we come to you and we confess before you, Lord, that we have in times past and maybe even in times present not responded to your love in a right manner. Father, we have spurned your love. We have rebelled against it. Father, forgive us. God, we pray that we would understand your love, that we would, with all the saints, understand the the height and the depth of it, the, the width and the breadth of it, Lord, that we would comprehend, understand what it means with clearer precision that you love, that you loved us, that you loved us first, that you loved us with compassion, with tenderness and gentleness. Father, we pray that your spirit would open our eyes to see maybe for the very first time your love. And know that that would make all the difference in our lives for the rest of our lives. So, Father, be glorified in us. May your grace be known by us. May your mercies be new every morning, as indeed they are. And we pray, O Lord Jesus, come. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.